Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology on the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today, we're talking, talking to Sophia Stamatopoulou-Robbins, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Bard College and author of Waste Siege, The Life of Infrastructure in Palestine, published in 2020 by Stanford University Press. The book is an ethnography of Palestinian life under occupation that takes waste infrastructure as a starting point for exploring how Palestinians deal with toxicity and uncertainty, how governance happens under conditions of occupation, and the everyday moral economies through which goods circulate and ethical selves are constructed. Uh, congratulations on a fantastic book, Sophia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we delve into the book itself, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to anthropology and the origins of this project? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started my uh, PhD in anthropology at Columbia University in 2006. And um, I ended up soon thereafter taking a class with Partha Chatterjee, which was on um, Gramsci and Foucault. And uh, that class coincided with um, the kind of commentary that came out of Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist movement, winning the Palestinian legislative elections um, in January of 2006. Uh, and the commentary that I noted as I decided to write my paper for that class on uh, Hamas was um, circulated around this idea that um, Palestinians were uh, probably not becoming radical Islamists. There was a kind of, and the commentaries I'm talking about here are coming out of the West and people who are sort of in the center politically or to the left who were hoping that they uh, that they were seeing something other than um, the Islamization of Palestine in this um, election victory of Hamas. So the comments were really circling around this idea that infrastructure and social welfare were what were missing from uh, Palestinians' experiences of governance uh, as they had been governed so far by the opposition party, which was Fatah. Um, and the thing that struck me most about this set of comments was that 
um, it's sort of simplified politics, electoral politics, but politics in general, um, down to this idea that anyone who believed anything would vote for someone they disagreed with as long as they were offering something like street sweeping um, or food distribution. And I thought that seemed like a simplification and didn't um, resonate with the ways we tend to think about politics as much more complicated than in the global north. So this set me down a path of thinking about how infrastructure and social welfare um, are experienced in Palestine. And I was especially interested because uh, Palestinians have lacked a state for, um, you know, as long as the modern um, Palestinian people have existed. So uh, you can't sort of imagine a predictable set of expectations being attached to a state or to a government if there has been the absence of this kind of experience of statehood uh, for such a long time. Um, sorry, so I should, so, so I should follow up from that to say that I started thinking at that point about infrastructure, but it was a bit accidental that I chose to work on uh, waste infrastructures. Uh, partly it was a decision made uh, because I was thinking that some elements of Palestinian experiences of infrastructures were actually quite well represented in the um, literatures by various disciplines and by NGOs, for example, water and electricity um, and I expected that if I were to go to Palestine and start asking questions about water infrastructures, as an outsider, I would probably receive relatively rehearsed, um, understandably rehearsed answers, uh, which would sort of uh, revolve around the fact that Israelis are stealing Palestinian water or control electricity. I thought that if I chose a topic like waste, I would find people sort of more open to thinking with me or more surprised to be talking about the mundane. So um, the waste kind of decision at the end of that infrastructure journey was a bit coincidental, but ended up opening a lot of avenues of um, kind of research and thinking afterwards that were pretty surprising. So that, that gets into my next question, which is really, given how many ways there are to think about and study the occupation, why waste? Why, why make waste the central one for you? And what makes the politics of garbage and sewage and secondhand goods such a rich venue for understanding both the occupation from the position of ordinary Palestinians, as well as the kinds of governance and um, that mediate relations between the population and the absent state? Yeah, so um, I think I want to point to three things to answer that question. One is that um, I was really interested at the time, this is in the um, 2007-8-9 period, um, in thinking with people like Bruno Latour about um, how we can kind of shake up the usual units we look at when we look at any um, kind of cultural or political phenomenon. So in the case of Palestine, as you're saying, there are many ways to think about Palestine, but also uh, Palestine has tended to sort of um, understandings of Palestine have tended to fall under certain tropes that involve assuming specifically that nationalism or ideology in general are kind of determining factors in why people feel the way they feel or behave the way they behave. Uh, or on the flip side, that sort of resource scarcity taken as a, an ontological given 
um, is what structures the quote unquote conflict, which I don't tend to call a conflict. Um, so I thought that following the thing, uh, which I borrow from science and technology studies, in this case, waste, would allow me to sort of watch an object or a set of objects move across space and across institutions and actors to understand what um, possibly unlikely alliances of actors and institutions are actually shaping life um, at the scale of the everyday. So this is me also trying to push against the kind of overdetermination of diplomatic politics in understanding Palestinian life, or for that matter, of major kind of uh, obvious political events like protests or, um, you know, signings of, of agreements. So I guess one way to put this is that I've also felt that uh, Palestine is understood often as a kind of layer cake where you have the occupation on top, the Palestinian authority in the middle, and then the Palestinian population as a kind of general uh, body. And I thought um, following waste across those sections of the cake, but also um, into corners like Palestinian municipalities or um, settlements or for that matter, Japanese aid agencies, you know, would help us understand something more um, kind of realistic about the way life unfolds in Palestine. So that's point one. Um, another point is that I, I thought, you know, Palestinian life and Palestine in general has been um, presented as um, exceptional or unique and therefore a place from which it's hard to think about other contexts. Although, of course, um, the growing interest in um, comparative settler colonial studies has undermined that. Uh, but in general, if Palestine is seen as universal and, ex I mean, sorry, as exceptional um, and unique, it also means that um, some of the mundane elements of life are less visible. So I thought waste, um, whatever we think in anthropology of how culturally constructed it is, and I think it is in many ways, is nevertheless a somewhat universal feature of life. So um, looking at Palestinian waste experiences would be a way also to help think about Palestinian life in comparative terms. Um, and then the last thing I was going to say about that is that um, modern waste has been at the center of understandings of the modern state, um, often seen as the site of negotiation or definition of the um, line between public and private. Um, you know, some people have argued that the modern state uh, exists as a kind of, um, I mean, this is Dominique Laporte with his history of shit. I'm thinking uh, that the modern state exists as the body that regulates the relationship between people and wastes. Um, but again, those kinds of arguments are based on the idea that there is a state um, in the first place or that, you know, the modern state will look a certain way or has certain features. And I thought it would be very interesting to think about what um, what things like discipline or surveillance um, or hygiene or mor morality, for that matter, look like when the central state is not actually um, central, so central in controlling the way that waste is managed. One of the, the concepts that's really jumped out at me, um, and going back to what you were saying about the growing 
presence of settler colonial studies in understanding this is that the way that the concept of wasteland has been a recurrent feature of colonialism and occupation and racial displacement, not only in Palestine, but also in a lot of other contexts around the world. So can you expand a little bit on what some of the key concepts or the key aspects of this wasteland rhetoric have been in the colonial environmental imaginary and how it's taken shape, um, particularly in Palestine? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that um, wastelands can can be um, two almost opposite types of territory. One is um, the wasteland as a kind of empty space that can be filled by uh, colonial rule or colonial inputs of various kinds. Um, and the other is uh, wasteland as a space that has that is full in some sense, um, but mismanaged so that um, the indigenous population is viewed as the um, mismanager of that space. And I think both of those um, types or versions of wasteland were key to Zionist settlement of Palestine. And um, in that sense also were not unique because I think that was, these were fundamental ways of thinking about places like Australia, Canada, um, the U.S. as they were being settled. Um, I think the interesting thing for me is that um, the latter version, so spa- well, actually both versions have been um, key to much more recent um, settler and colonial expansion into the West Bank, um, except maybe with the kind of addition of or the slight tweaking of the latter form, which is that the indigenous population, the Pal- Palestinians, are often viewed as um, lacking in environmental expertise and or awareness. That is, that they are viewed as um, people who lack the capacity to know the land in the right way and to know its future in specific ways. And um, this new version of the environmental imaginary is attached to specific versions of environmentalism that grew out of the 1970s and then kind of were written into the Oslo Accords in the 1990s, um, which is also to say that this is an environmental imaginary now shared by a lot of international donors who fund the Palestinian Authority, um, which means that um, the Palestinian Authority, which is now in a position to actually try to manage some aspects of the land by managing waste, um, is in the position of having to convince both donors and the um, Israeli government and other interested parties in Israel, like environmental NGOs, uh, that the Palestinian Authority is environmentally friendly um, or that it knows somehow how to uh, be a proper custodian of the environment. Um, that I, I, I'm kind of previewing chapter five here, and I know we'll get there, but I think um, this focus on a, on particular forms of expertise is really um, a very powerful and pernicious part of the environmental imaginary right now, um, in particular because that expertise is perceived to uh, accrue to a person from specific um, institutions like uh, university education in the United States or Germany. And also from experience, experience managing infrastructures, 
both of which Palestinians are often denied precisely because they're under occupation. So the name of the book is is Waste Siege, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit um, about that concept and something that you mark out as a kind of historical period, just to get some of the context for uh, when you were conducting your ethnographic research. Um, And yeah, what do you mean by this concept and and what does it refer to in terms of the way that uh, Palestinians were experiencing violence at the time of your work? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'll start by saying that um, there is a kind of provocative uh, implication of my argument in Waste Siege, which is that um, Palestinians are experiencing waste in a way that can... um, can sometimes uh, occlude or elide experiences of um, direct military violence by the Israelis. And I say it's provocative because it sounds as if I'm saying uh, violence um, by Israel has been reduced somehow in Palestine, which is is not actually what I'm saying, but I do think that it's changed forms. uh, And I think that matters. And I think that change um, must be understood in parallel to a change in Israel's um, approach to the West Bank with regard to waste management since it occupied that territory in 1967. So um, between the 1960s, 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank and the mid-1990s, one of the things I learned by um, doing some archival digging into um Israeli early Israeli planning and infrastructure planning for waste management infrastructures in the West Bank and also from working at the scale of municipalities in the West Bank, Palestinian municipalities, is that the Israeli authorities treated the West Bank as part of Israel for from the perspective of waste management during that first period until the 1990s. So that meant that in the 19, early 1970s, Israel... Um, built or approved construction of wastewater treatment plants in several um, Palestinian West Bank cities. Um, Again, it's worth noting that this probably was cynical in the sense that uh, there was a cholera outbreak in Jerusalem in in 1970 or 1971, and that was attributed to the irrigation of vegetables in the West Bank by sewage. So, um, you know, the the motivation for building those wastewater treatment plants or approving them might have been to protect Israeli public health um, and uh, the tourism industry, which was hit pretty hard from the cholera outbreak. On the other hand, um, the fact remains that these plants, which were absent before the 1970s, were built um, and were similar technologies to the technologies that were being um, built across Israel. Um, and another example is that in the 1980s, Israel uh, began planning, seriously planning um, sanitary landfills to be built in the West Bank. Um, And the idea was that those would serve both Palestinian communities and settler communities, um, and that they would sort of mirror similar plans being implemented inside Israel. So Israel was effectively applying Israeli environmental or waste management standards from Israel in the West Bank. Then after the 1990s, when Israel um, sort of uh, abrogated its governing responsibilities vis-a-vis the Palestinian population in the West Bank and, um, you know, the Palestinian Authority was established, 
Israel began obstructing the construction of Palestinian infrastructures, exactly like wastewater treatment plants and garbage disposal infrastructures like incinerators or landfills. And that obstruction continues today. Um, Meanwhile, Israel also began to permit uh, or be much more lax about the dumping of wastes in the West Bank from settlements and from Israel, uh, which I think was also encouraged by the fact that Israeli um, environmental policy started to become more rigid and uh, waste management became more expensive for a lot of municipalities and industries in Israel. So um, there was motivation, financial motivation for people for Israelis to dump their wastes in the West Bank where there was no regulation um, or very little of it. Um, finally, or there are a couple of couple more elements to this, um, Israel has started to prohibit the movement of wastes outside of the West Bank into Israel, which was part of the separation of the West Bank from Israel that occurred in the 1990s. And then um, once the PA was established, um, part of its goal was to make itself state-like and uh, the and give the Palestinians it was governing the experience of a kind of normalcy under uh, under a state. So um, there was a decision made to uh, Im- to be able to increase uh, Palis- um, imports by Palestinian businesses from anywhere in the world, um, which happened at the same time as the uh, Palestinian economy was being increasingly um, undermined. So people had very little money. Business shopkeepers, for example, had very little money. So they would import um, the cheapest possible goods or cheaper goods than they could find around them, which of course also undermined local industries like shoemaking, for example, that were making um, higher quality goods. So that was a kind of major economic shift that also meant um, waste disposable or lower quality goods were flowing into the West Bank at much higher rates and also had nowhere to go. Um, I think I should say something about the change in the nature of violence um, briefly. One thing to say is that, of course, violence and um, Israeli control are still alive and well um, in the West Bank. But I would say that during my period of research, they had shifted notably. um, So, for example, since I think, yeah, the early 2000s, maybe 2006, there have been basically no bombings in the West Bank. Um, Internal checkpoints have been relatively relaxed so that it took me something like seven hours to get from Ramallah to Janine in 2007, and that only took me 1.5, well, an hour and a half um, to get from Janine to Ramallah and back um, during my field work between 2009 and 2016. So the internal checkpoints were relaxed. And then um, targeted assassinations and arrests, which continue to take place, generally are kind of isolated to a particular house or take place at night. And you don't find Israeli tanks or jeeps or soldiers typically moving through Palestinian urban centers the way they once did. In fact, they were stationed in those centers during the 1980s and before. So these are major shifts in the everyday experience of soldiers and 
weapons, um, even if the violence is itself always potentially there. Um, and then um, in parallel, what I'm saying is that the presence of various waste became more intense. And what I was most puzzled by and what led me to explore waste as a kind of political problem was that it seemed that the presence of waste was obfuscating certain forms of Israeli domination or leading to confusion about who was responsible for the improvement of everyday life. So that really comes through um, in the first chapter, which is called Compression, and looks at the construction and modernization of a landfill in Palestine. So can you describe this space and some of the actors who are involved in the management of it and say a bit about how this landfill came to be a national project? Like, what does it mean for waste infrastructure to occupy such a big place in the national imaginary? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'll say about the national imaginary is that um, it's certainly not a um, kind of an agreed upon national imaginary, but certainly a very powerful imaginary for the um, engineers and environmental experts and other bureaucrats who were working inside the Palestinian Authority and in the joint service councils, which were created by the Palestinian Authority to um, to sort of run the new centralized waste management schemes that were being implemented. Um, Zahrat al-Fanjan um, landfill is a landfill in the Janine governorate. It's carved into a piece of agricultural land um, and is the first sanitary landfill um, run by the PA in the West Bank. Um, sanitary landfill just means that it is... Um, a dump site where there is lining placed under the waste at the bottom of the crater to create a buffer between the waste and the liquids, particularly from the waste and the earth below it. And it's uh, controlled by a gate and like a fence all around the landfill itself. And then a gate that weighs trucks that come in to um, determine how much waste is being brought from which municipality. Um, and that whole system is based on um, a major change that the uh, Palestinian Authority implemented, which is that it closed um, initially over 85 local municipal dump sites that were situated at the edges of uh, municipalities uh, forcing those municipalities to now send their wastes to this one landfill in, in the northern West Bank. So the the people who actually work there, other than the workers who help uh, drive the compressor machines and work at the Weybridge at the gate, are these um, engineers who manage the fact that this is a, a, a loan-based infrastructure. So they they manage the financials of that infrastructure and they also make sure that um, the uh, all the municipalities are um, kind of following the regulations of the landfill in terms of what can be brought in and what uh, what must be left outside it, it is for this group of engineers that I saw uh, the landfill being really uh, a profound political statement. Uh, for them, one of the most important things was that the landfill was built in what's called Area C, which is an Oslo 
uh, era designation of territory. It's about 75% of the West Bank that is entirely controlled by uh, the Israeli government through the Israeli military in the West Bank. So um, it's almost impossible for a Palestinian uh, individual or institution to build any kind of infrastructure or housing in the West, in the area C areas. Uh, so the fact that this landfill was a Palestinian authority landfill with a Palestinian flag cut into area C was itself a major um, coup in some sense. Uh, the fact that it was a the largest to date waste management infrastructure, that kind of scale made it national in some sense. And the fact that it uh, prevented um, waste from being deposited across the rest of the territory suggested a kind of national cleanup of uh, the that part of the West Bank and was imagined as um, significant partly because it was replacing or cleaning up from the direct Israeli occupation that had been in place until the mid-1990s. Uh, the fact that the landfill planning is what is considered long-term planning for um, for Palestinians. The 30-year planning of a landfill's lifespan was um, also, I think, a major part of that uh, sense that it was a national plan, that kind of longer-term, um, longer temporality. And then the fact that they, the engineers were managing major loans from the World Bank and the European Union um, gave them a sense that they were kind of working at the scale of state building um, because these budgets, the $9 million from the World Bank and I think around $4 million from the European Union um, were much bigger than any uh, Palestinian who had worked under the Israeli administration would have uh, worked on. And finally, the there was a there was some controversy around whether to call this centralization or decentralization, but essentially the landfill did centralize the Palestinian Authority's control over um, municipalities across the northern West Bank, uh, which had, again, before that been controlled by Israel. So there was a way in which the landfill provided the opportunity to um, rearrange the workings of local municipalities. So you've touched on it a bit there, but the law is a really critical part of the waste management, the construction of waste management infrastructure and the geographies of waste flows in the West Bank. So can you say how the legal infrastructure of occupation functions both to keep waste in the West Bank and to direct Israeli waste there as well? Yeah, I think um, one of the most important elements is that um, there the Israeli environmental law or Israeli law uh, in general, does not apply to the West Bank. But it's very important to say it's Israeli environmental law, which is, as I said, becoming increasingly strict in relation to pollution and um, contamination of resources, uh, doesn't apply to the West Bank, which means that for Israelis, the West Bank has become a kind of lawless no man's land where they can dispose of wastes that are otherwise difficult to dispose of. So that in itself has encouraged a certain amount of dumping. Um, and then, you know, I think law is a strange word. The area A, B, and C designations that are very, very important to construction of infrastructures for Palestinians in the West Bank, um, I should say A and B are both territories where um, 
the Palestinian Authority has some authority uh, to, for example, to determine street lighting uh, or to stop traffic violations, but uh, where the Israelis nevertheless maintain control. Um, so the Arab A, B, and C designations have um, been fundamental to preventing the construction of Palestinian infrastructures, partly because in Area C, which is uh, where Israel maintains full control, um, that is where most large-scale Palestinian infrastructures would be built because that is those are the areas outside of um, dense uh, population centers. So uh, those two, I would say areas A, B, and C, that designation and the non-application of Israeli environmental law are the two um, maybe most important elements uh, regulation-wise that are creating waste siege. So you write that the landfill isn't just accumulating garbage, but it's also a way of accumulating and making time. So can you explain a bit about what you mean by that and some of the temporal paradoxes that are taking place as um, waste infrastructure is being modernized? Yeah. Um, the thing that really uh, interested me once I started thinking seriously about landfills is that they grow over time. Um, and initially I had thought this was, this made waste management infrastructures unique, but I think it's some, it's similar in fact to what happens to electrical grids, um, which expand as population centers need more electricity, but landfills grow over time and therefore take more land as they grow, uh, because they fill up with waste. And, um, that is a very uh, challenging thing in a place like Palestine, which is land scarce and where um, Palestinians, um, whom the Palestinian Authority was asking, uh, has been asking to give up their lands, are of course going to be um, sensitive about giving up forever agricultural lands that they would be using for cultivation and for passing wealth on through the generations. Um, so that was the most important challenge that the um, engineers had to face as they were um, constructing and operating the landfill in Janine, um, which meanwhile was also, as I said, built on a loan that they had to pay back uh, to the World Bank, uh, and the loan was already due. Um, but And because they had closed the surrounding dump sites to force municipalities to um, dispose of their waste at the landfill... Uh, when those municipalities were too in debt or poor to actually pay the fees to pay back the loan in the landfill, the operators, the engineers that I spent time with, had to figure out another way to get the money to pay back the loan. And the way they chose was to increase the number of people whose waste was being disposed of there. So they increased it from 200,000, which it was designed for, to 600,000 and then 1 million which meant that that much more waste was coming in, more people were paying, which was helping pay, pay back the loan, but now the landfill was filling up too quickly and um, decreased in its lifespan from, from 30 years down to 15, which was very stressful because it meant that the um, operators were going to have to seek more land to continue bearing waste. Um, and one of the solutions they tried to develop for that was... Um, to reject certain types of waste. So construction and demolition waste, for example, are very bulky and they just excluded them from disposal there, which of course sent those wastes out into 
other spaces because they had to go somewhere. And again, they couldn't leave the West Bank. So um, they ended up piling up in other parts of the West Bank. Uh, but what I found was that the engineers who were dealing with these very um, complicated dilemmas that were always kind of forced upon them, both by the infrastructure that they had chosen or were forced to um, put in place and also by the just ontological fact of wastes accumulating, uh, was that they developed this um, sense of time that was attached to the lifespan of the landfill. So I call that landfill time. I found them kind of uh, carving out a way to deal with the ethical and political dilemma of having to sort of eat more land uh, that was both politically a sensitive thing and ethically a sensitive thing when you look at the communities that whose land is being taken. Um, and they would focus in on this these periods of time that were attached to the landfill's lifespan and kind of pause all other questions, including um, ideals they held about doing recycling and environmental awareness campaigns uh, for a time after the landfill uh, would fill up and ideally be closer to closing. And I guess an important component to point to here is that they felt that their hands were tied in having to construct landfills because um, Israel wouldn't allow um, incineration, for example, which takes a lot less land uh, because there were um, because Israel kind of claimed that there were security concerns around Palestinians having combustion technologies. And the donors like the World Bank and the German government who funded waste management were um, really hesitant to support technologies like incineration because of the environmental imaginary I mentioned earlier, which um, in which they imagined that Palestinians lacked the technical know-how to manage these supposedly more sophisticated uh, technologies. So um, landfill time is that kind of paused temporality that the engineers opened up and held open um, as they waited for better solutions. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So the, the next chapter is called Inundation, and it moves us from the landfill to some of the more everyday spaces of the city, where you describe the really lively trade in secondhand Israeli goods that's taking place in the West Bank, um, visiting a, this place that's a so-called rubbish market. Before we get too much into the rubbish market itself, can you maybe um, 
Tell us about the inundation of disposable goods into Palestine and the kinds of planned obsolescence that are the backdrop for the secondhand economies that you're describing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier that um, when the uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization signed the Paris Protocol in 1995, that protocol allowed Palestinians to import directly from anywhere for the first time. Um, and uh, the choice that was made by kind of um, the economic imperative of people not having um, that much cash was to import goods that were um, of a lower quality in many cases, or in, or in any case perceived to be of a lower, lower quality, partly because they were being regulated by the Palestinian Authority and not the Israeli government. Um, so what I what I came to realize was that um, although uh, Israel continues, of course, to control imports and delay a lot of imports at its ports before they get into the West Bank, um, they are not the Israeli government is and customs officials are not. Um, controlling for quality, they're controlling for what they see as security-related issues. So um, the goods that were coming in starting in the late 1990s were um, regulated by the Palestinian Authority, which in which pal many Palestinians I spoke with had very little faith, um, and were uh, expiring much more quickly than the goods um, people had been accustomed to using uh, had expired, so that there was a sense of inundation by the wrong kind of um, goods, even though there were many goods. So there wasn't an issue of scarcity so much as a scarcity of quality. And at the same time, um, the enclosure by the wall of the West Bank meant that Palestinians who previously previously had been able to move through space and shop in places like Haifa or Tel Aviv were now unable to do that. So they were sort of um, trapped in very specific markets. And that uh, that was fundamental to that feeling of inundation. So in that context, is discarded Israeli goods become seen as some of the highest quality goods that are available. So can you describe a little bit how, how those goods come into Palestine? What are the kind of circuits through which the secondhand economy is taking place? Yeah. So... Um, Many, most of the Palestinians who once worked in Israel um, in construction, for example, and other um, industries stopped being able to after the enclosure of the West Bank. But a few of them were able to maintain contacts with uh, their employers on the other side of the Green Line in Israel. And so they can obtain Israeli perm work permits to enter Israel on a regular basis. Um, those very few um, Palestinian, West Bank Palestinians, along with some um, Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship but who live in the West Bank because their um, spouses are West Bank ID holders and cannot live in Israel, uh, together partner to travel two or three times a week with vans, for example, across um, checkpoints that separate the West Bank from Israel. And they tend to go to uh, Jaffa's uh, used goods market to Haifa and to Jerusalem. Those are the main centers where uh, very, very early in the morning, they get dibs on 
the um, used goods that are being displayed um, for largely Israeli consumption. Uh, at the peripheries of those markets in Haifa and Jerusalem and Jaffa, there are always also the discards of the used goods markets, so the things that didn't even make it into those used goods markets. And uh, when I followed traders from Janine who did go to Jaffa, I found that they circulated both inside the Jaffa used goods market itself, collecting and purchasing um, used goods from Israeli traders, but also collecting discards from the surrounds of that market. And then by, let's say, 2 p.m., they get back to um, Janine and uh, circulate around the market selling, reselling those goods to the Janine um, shopkeepers in the used goods market. And I think that's the, it captures the process that's taking place around the West Bank. One of the really interesting points you make is how this, uh, this story complicates our understandings about waste flows as always a form of colonial dumping. So what do you think we can learn from this to think differently about transnational movements of discards? Yeah, I mean, I think um, on the one hand, a lot of uh, consumers or commentators in Palestine, I mean, in, uh, in Janine, for example, who talked about the used goods market there, uh, were uncomfortable with those goods becoming um, kind of domestic objects for Palestinians uh, while knowing that they were they had been discarded by Israelis and they they did many people did speak of them in terms of a kind of colonial dumping or dehumanization or humiliation um, on the other hand a lot of people um, saw them insisted on seeing them as um, more of, of a higher quality and as more valuable than the new goods on the regular market. And I think the fact that the market continues to um, exist and to grow is a testament to the fact that many people um, are quite attached to its existence. So I think uh, what we can learn is to take seriously the forms of valuation that um, our interlocutors uh, undertake or um, perform as they think about used goods that might even come from the source of their domination. I think it's important to kind of take a phenomenological approach to that. Um, and I also think that uh, the effects of those uh, used goods circulating in uh, Palestinian homes and, you know, on, on people's bodies as they wear Israeli used clothes um, can't be kind of predicted just on the basis of what the uh, origin was of those objects. So um, people, they were often used as kind of tools for upward mobility for within um, Janine society. Uh, there were ways of adorning a home or um, someone's body that would um, kind of give you a cultural capital, especially in this very, very depressed economy that Janine has, um, that, that has, it has had for the last couple of decades. So I think paying attention to those, um, to the phenomenology and the effects of uh, colonial goods circulating in colonized spaces is an important thing we can do as anthropologists. I think a similar argument you make in chapter three, which is called accumulation and deals with uh, the ways that communities around the landfill site understand and critique the problems 
that uh, the, the landfill and waste infrastructure poses for them. Part of this phenomenal under, understanding is thinking about the ways that these critiques aren't actually often articulated in terms of environmental justice or even environmentalism in general. Um, so how did residents in this place talk about the accumulation of waste in their villages? Yeah. Well, one of the things that was most interesting was that on the one hand, um, it was clear to the people in this village of Shukba that I uh, focus on in chapter three, it was clear that this was an environmental problem. The fact that they were um, the site of accumulation, the accumulation of waste from Israeli settlements and industries and Palestinian uh, hospitals, for example, the problem was environmental in the sense that it was pollution, but uh, what they were seeing was causing pollution. But uh, their um, kind of critique of it wasn't uh, didn't remain at that level. So uh, I think that was partly because wastes um, are always attached to humans who created them and. Uh, therefore kind of indexed human presence, even when uh, the humans who produced them were not there, uh, which meant that um, there was a sense that the fact that the there were villagers who were also benefiting from the waste dumping by allowing trucks to dump on their lands in exchange for cash was just as important as the fact that the Israelis were dumping on a Palestinian village. And uh, I found that the sense of betrayal that the uh, people of this village felt vis-a-vis their own um, fellow villagers was the most powerful uh, sense that they carried around with them. And uh, in addition to their sense of being neglected by the Palestinian authority, which was failing over and over again to provide protection against this or to clean up um, the accumulation, which was not even in the realm of possibility, just st- even just stopping the dumping would have been a major accomplishment. Um, but I think those senses of betrayal by at the local level and also by uh, Palestinian government struck me as more important than the environmental justice kind of blaming the source, the the original source in some sense of the waste. One of the the themes that emerges here is also this idea about uncertainty around toxicity and the difficulty that um, residents had evidencing the exposure to toxic materials they had. So so what forms of uh, toxicity were people exposed to and and why was it so hard for them to to prove this in any way that could catch on? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I can only make statements that were based on what my interlocutors also understood, and they lived in so much uncertainty. So I can say that um, at the level of their bodies, they were seeing um, higher rates of cancer, they were seeing respiratory illness, skin uh, issues, diseases, um, infertility, impotence in men. Um, So they were seeing signs on their bodies on the one hand, which reminds us of um, the kind of story of birth defects in places like Iraq, where, um, you know, it's evident that there is a problem to the mother who gives birth to a child um, with birth defects. Uh, But the question of how you connect that to a particular origin, toxic origin, is much more complicated, especially when... um, 
when there are conditions of war so or occupation in this case. So uh, the people I talked to had a very strong sense that these things they were seeing on their bodies were connected to these huge waste mountains that were often being burned, uh, sometimes for up to three months at a time, uh, just constant um, fire uh, fire coming out of, and smoke coming out of these dump sites. So they knew that there was a relationship, but they couldn't easily trace what it was in those mountains of garbage that was the source of any one of these problems. This really reminds me of um, work by our colleague Vasiliki Tuliotis on the effects of uh, war in Lebanon as well and the kind of uncertainties around cancers and birth defects and exposures that has happened there. But you um, you theorize this as a form of dispossession by accumulation. So can you say a bit about what you mean by that and what intervention you're hoping to make with that concept? Yeah, I mean, I just, I wanted to point to the way that waste um, has this effect of because ontologically sort of taking up space, um, uh, both by uh, taking up healthy space and by taking up actual space. So when I think of actual space, I think of the trash mountains that now uh, mean that land is no longer land, essentially. It is something else, um, but it's also not a place where anyone could reside. So it's a third thing. Um, Sometimes this has been referred to as the kind of sacrifice zone. Um, But on the other, so there's that way of taking up space, which um, also takes place when someone, when uh, the Israeli military uh, demolishes a home, for example, and leaves the home in place so that the family can't rebuild there without um, investing a great deal of money to clean the space. So suddenly that plot of land has been sort of taken off the map. Um, There's that kind of accumulation that causes dispossession because people um, necessarily either lose their land or both lose their land and have to leave. And then there is the kind of dispossession by toxicity where um, several people I spoke with in the village of Shukba thought about, had thought very seriously about leaving the village and living in uh, the city, for example, of Ramallah, where um, they would feel safer and further away from the dioxins that are being emitted by the fire of the mountain. So I think, you know, we need to, we often think about um, accumulation by dispossession. And I thought the reversal of that phrase would help um, help us really understand the way that waste is um, uniquely in some ways uh, placed to to add to dynamics of dispossession. The other kind of big conceptual argument running through this chapter is about the dynamics of hypo-governance and hyper-governance. Um, so can you say a bit about what what, you, what that dynamic involves and how it's present in environmental contamination and waste management politics? Yeah, I was trying to um, address an unsettled feeling I had whenever I would read depictions of Palestine through an, an Agambenian lens that um, understood it as a kind of a camp or a space of exception, a space where bare life uh, was the kind of um, human condition for Palestinians. Uh, because there are so many ways in which Palestinians, for example, even in a place like Shukba, this village, uh, which has mostly is mostly on area sea land, so is 
directly under Israeli control, even in those spaces, uh, shukbans are constantly governed in some ways by the the um, Israeli uh, regulations or um, ad hoc prohibitions on their movement or on the movement of their wastes uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, they are kind of abandoned by uh, Israel or neglected. And at the same time, they're both governed in some sense by the Palestinian Authority, which um, does have a police force and now actually even has a police headquarters inside the village. Um, but on the other hand, they don't receive the help that they need from the Palestinian Authority. Um, so there's a kind of neglect and presence at the same time. And I think um, accounting for the presence part, in addition to the neglect, was my um attempt to speak back a little bit to ideas of abandonment that might miss out on the um, the ways in which there are expectations uh, among Palestinians that they will be governed by certain structures, whether or not they like those structures. In chapter four, uh, which is called Gifted, you look at the kind of self-built uh, infrastructure that's emerged around food waste and the ethics that govern the creation of that. So can you um, recount how you first came to notice the circulation of bread waste in Palestinian cities and how this urban form of exchange has added an extra layer on top of the city's already existing infrastructures. Yeah, I, th I think this was a funny part of the fieldwork because I uh, I spent my um, first few years doing fieldwork ignoring the bread that was uh, deposited all across urban spaces um, it was hanging off of dumpster handles and um, window grates and fire hydrants, even um, in Jerusalem, uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, it was in alcoves, wall alcoves, um, and on ledges all around me. But for a long time, because I had spent so much time in my initial field work working with experts and engineers who didn't see this it was just, uh, this practice was just invisible to them. I also kind of refused to see it myself. And finally, for writing the book, I decided um, I had to take it into account because it was um, such a prevalent form of waste management that was being uh, practiced across the West Bank. Um, in terms of how it has added a layer or it adds a layer of infrastructure to the existing infrastructures, I've mentioned where the bread, which is bread people don't want um, for various reasons because they have too much bread uh, and they're going to buy fresh bread tomorrow or because bread is starting to go stale or starting to go moldy. Um, so, uh, But they there is a kind of ethical, moral injunction for Palestinians not to throw bread away in the garbage. So this is their solution. And I found it really interesting that in placing bread outdoors in the hopes or the with the thinking that it's possible that uh, someone else might take it, they were, um, you know, creating an infrastructure that was layered onto these other urban infrastructures. Um, and the reason I say it's an infrastructure, this bread, is that um, it it has been facilitating, it facilitates the flow of People, so people um, move across space to touch the bread or to consider taking it or um, to take it for their animals, for example. And it facilitates the circulation of this idea that there is a collective 
um, out there with a shared sensibility, ethical kind of sensibility around bread. And I think I was particularly struck when I stayed in an Airbnb once in Ramallah and the instructions for taking out the garbage, they they were just, uh, they just said, there's no recycling in Palestine. Um, take your garbage out to the street dumpster at the end of your stay. And uh, there was no discussion of um, which, what one should do with bread. And after I did a lot of research about the bread, I realized, yeah, there's a sense in which this is a kind of national collectivity or an internal collectivity uh, with an ethical uh, orientation toward bread. And it's not it's not seen as something everyone needs to be instructed in, um, like the foreign guest who's staying at an Airbnb, but rather a kind of um, anonymous collective. And the reason that matters, uh, an, an anonymous collective that is nevertheless somewhat nationally shaped. And I think that matters partly because there's been a lot written and said about the fact that the post-Oslo period and the post-Second Intifada period in Palestine have been characterized by the collapse of the national movement. So there's uh, a pre- prevailing critique of uh, the lack of a kind of solidarity or a sense of national belonging as the Oslo, the promise of Oslo statehood has kind of faded, but nothing has um, come into it, come in its place to um, to improve the situation. So bread, bread's not just something that's really complicated morally to dispose of, but it's also, you write, really complicated to receive and to take because of the decades of humanitarian intervention that have um, taken place there. Gift economies are very complicated. So can you explain how this um, history of humanitarianism has shaped the way that Palestinians interpret the act of both giving and receiving this bread? Yeah, I'll start by saying that I was once in a um, in a bakery and um, I was talking to one of the employees in the bakery who was explaining that they had put um, in a corner a sign over some bread uh, that said that anyone um, in need could take that bread. And the idea was that, uh, you know, people who are struggling financially would walk over to that area of the bakery and take the bread. And he explained to me that that sign had quickly been taken down after the manager of the bakery realized that uh, people were embarrassed to walk up to that corner of the bakery to take the bread. Um, And in a a similar um, sort of dynamic uh, at a restaurant, that was in Ramallah, in a similar dynamic at a restaurant in Bethlehem, um, I was told by the again, the owner of the restaurant that uh, he likes to give the extra bread from the, from each day's um, business to people who come by who are in need, but he puts it in a black plastic bag and kind of gives it to them with um, discretion exactly because there would be embarrassment around them showing that they need bread, which is also one of the most fundamental elements of Palestinian cuisine and is um, and is relatively cheap. So there's a way in which it's particularly um, indicative of a person's financial standing for them to not even be able to afford bread. Um, and what I found was interesting about these moments was that they really stood in contrast to what I understood was the dynamic, for example, during the first intifada and the 
late 1980s when there were open channels of um, sort of mutual welfare provision among people and they were across classes and uh, yeah, across the geography of the West Bank so that uh, everyone knew who was in need in a neighborhood and openly gave them what they needed, whether it was bread or milk or something else during uh, really heavy incursions, for example, by the, Palest- the, the Israeli military. Um, and thinking back to the earlier kind of longer durée of humanitarian aid in Palestine, including the setting up of Palestinian refugee camps um, across the Middle East and also in the West Bank and Gaza, I understood that the kind of sense of shame I was seeing in the 2009 and after years uh, was a kind of um, shift, marked a kind of shift in the um, sensibilities around receiving aid, even from um, other Palestinians. And I think that partly resonates with a general critique that also circulates among Palestinians in Palestine of the humanitarian aid industry, which has been shaping politics and in some ways creating forms of dependence uh, on itself um, that uh, yeah, with with um, uncertain or dubious political ramifications. So I think the critique of uh, being dependent on aid has kind of dovetailed with a kind of shame around de- being dependent and also around um, failing to live a kind of normal life, which was the ideal promoted by the Palestinian Authority when it was established and then kind of reinvigorated after the Second Intifada. Um, in 2007 and after that. So the, the final chapter is called Leakage, and it looks at a much um, less appealing form of waste, um, taking us into sewage. But it really focuses in on the idea of a shared environment that has shaped sovereignty in Palestine. So what is this idea of a shared environment? What does it refer to? And how has it come to prominence in the wake of the Af- Oslo Accords? Yeah, this idea emerged um, in, especially in the uh, early 1990s, as there was movement toward um, a set of agreements that would end the first intifada, um, and it was kind of worked through by uh, collaborations between Israeli and Palestinian environmental experts, and sometimes by outside environmental and water experts like um, people from the United States. And the idea was that uh, there could be, um, there was hope in understanding the West Bank as an environment shared between Israel and the now, the nascent at that time, Palestinian Authority, uh, because uh, cooperation around environmental protection, especially around the um, aquifer, which uh, flanks from below the West Bank and um, and Israel uh, that that could somehow um, that kind of partnership could create uh, a buffer against other kinds of political tensions. And in fact, the idea of a shared environment was perceived and continues to be perceived as an apolitical or non-political way of understanding the West Bank, which uh, pr- privileges peace. Um, and I, as as you see in the chapter, I really I worry, based on my understanding of the way that Palestinian Authority and um, 
NGO and other um, members of the Palestinian community are kind of forced into the participating in this imaginary. So you talk about that as a kind of creating a double bind that Palestinian officials have to operate within. Mm -hmm. So what effect does that have on the actual operations of the Palestinian government? Yeah, I mean, I I found, for example, that um, the Palestinian Authority uh, wastewater um, department, the people who are working on uh, trying to find ways to to better manage Palestinian sewage, end up um, promoting or supporting projects that are uh, in line with this environmental imaginary of a shared environment, but that do not actually meet the needs of um, the majority of Palestinians who need their sewage to be treated. So the example I give in Chapter 5 is of a small series of projects up in the Northern West Bank that are on the boundary with um, with uh, Israel, where uh, the idea was that Palestinian villages would be connected by a sewer system, a, a series of pipelines, pipes to uh, Israeli communities on the other side, where which happen to be actually Palestinian communities, but they are um, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in most cases, and the sewage would be treated inside Israel. And this was so captivating to the Japanese donor in that case um, as a kind of peace project because it crossed the uh, boundary between uh, the West Bank and Israel, which is perceived to be the boundary between Palestine and Israel, and therefore to be per- uh, which is perceived then as a kind of bridge, literally, of uh, hope and collaboration between the two entities. And um, I found that my Palestinian Authority interlocutors were doing that kind of project um, to partly in order to um, project a kind of good neighborliness and environmental friendliness to their donor and uh, uh, donor representatives and to Israel. While meanwhile, they were unable to um, push forward wastewater treatment plants for much, much larger population centers like Tulkarem, Nablus, Ramallah, Janine, etc. Um, but there was this idea that maybe by moving through um, un- less helpful projects like that boundary crossing one, they could eventually get closer to um, achieving their goals for the larger wastewater treatment plants. But there was this way in which they were also kind of compelled to perform an environmental friendliness that always struck me as really challenging because I, I could see why they felt the need to perform that in order to gain a kind of respect in the eyes of the donors and the Israelis who favored the idea of a shared environment. Uh, but meanwhile, they were unable to make kind of nation-based claims about what their own constituents needed most. So the multiple forms of waste management that we see throughout the book are evidence of what's called the phantom state. Can you maybe explain that idea and say a bit about how people use it and what analytical purchase it gives you for understanding the state of waste siege? Yeah, I um, I heard that phrase for the first time while sitting in a butcher shop um, in Nablus in the old city in the fall of 2009. And uh, it was the butcher who said it to me. He said um, something like, 
Uh, here we're governed by a state that exists but doesn't do what it needs to do. That was the sort of general idea. And I was uh, really fascinated by that idea that there was a presence despite uh, failure. And I think um, that is the main kind of uh, effect I saw Waste Siege having. I mean, there were, as you said, there were so many effects of the multiple forms of waste that are kind of piling up in the West Bank. But um, above all, maybe what matters politically most is that um, many people attributed what their their burdensome um, conditions to this kind of presence of the Palestinian Authority despite its failure. And I think analytically for me that was important because I was writing at a time when, or I started the project at a time when the Palestinian Authority's failure seemed uh, like it meant we should sort of dismiss the Palestinian Authority's existence um, altogether, or we should focus on the ways in which it is effective, for example, when it um, collaborates with the Israelis to um, subdue Palestinian protests against the occupation. Uh, but the kind of, I wanted to open up a space for thinking about ineffectiveness and presence at the same time, which is something I call kind of matter-of-factness uh, in the book. And I think that is something um, we could take to other contexts where um, we see failures, um, for example, in Lebanon, uh, where the, the protests around trash have been great and, and indict the government for failure. But of course, in failure, there's um, something is produced. And I think paying attention to the way something is produced what is produced is important. And in particular, the connection between waste siege and that matter of factness or the phantom state for me was that when uh, in an accumulation site like Shukba, for example, people experience this, uh, these accumulations of waste, those accumulations themselves come to sort of condense and index the failed but matter of fact presence of the Palestinian Authority. So people come to feel governed in the very moment of the failure of governance. And the toxicities and the uncertainties and the physical sensory experiences of the waste itself become the kind of content of what the Palestinian Authority is as it fails. So I think that's the way in which I see the I see waste siege and the phantom state as kind of two sides of one sheet of paper or two sides of a coin. There's, there's so much more we haven't um, had the chance to talk about in the book. But to wrap things up, the final question I wanted to ask, I think, gets back to this idea of thinking beyond Palestine as an exception. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what lessons and concepts from this ethnography you think are the most mobile and will be particularly important for researchers working on infrastructure, abandonment, slow violence, toxicity, and some of the other themes that uh, run through the book. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in addition to some of the things we've already mentioned, like this idea that uh, used goods from the global north can be something in addition to forms of colonial dumping, or that um, toxicity can be uh, a problem that we think of through lenses in addition to the lens of environmental justice, again, paying attention to the phenomenological 
experiences of our interlocutors. I think um, one methodological uh, point I hope will be mobile and it's is is very simple but uh, meaningful for me, which is that because when we think about um, conditions of indigenous or otherwise marginalized populations in relation to waste, we usually think about of them again in terms of environmental justice and in that context, usually in terms of the waste inputs those communities receive from outside. So I'm thinking of places like Detroit and Chicago, where communities of color are exposed disproportionately to waste or to, you know, New Mexico and nuclear wastes near indigenous communities. Uh, we think much less of the ways in which those communities experience their own wastes and uh, produce and consume wastes in certain ways that might be invisible if we think primarily in terms of um, kind of the toxic dumping model, which has been relatively dominant for thinking about um, for marginalized communities. Then um, if we take waste siege kind of beyond the scale only of um, the most disproportionately affected, we can also think of it kind of in... Um, in practical or ontological terms as a as a condition whereby wastes are ontologically growing in volume uh, on the planet and i think that that uh once once we recognize that and see waste as a kind of ecology or as the environment or as a part of the environment i think that challenges us to um, ask new questions about what we mean when we say environment or what we mean when we say pollution and therefore also how we think about the kind of always imperfect ways in which we're going to move forward to try to improve um, life on this planet. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Before we go, I just wanted to ask what you're working on at the moment. Thanks. Um, I'm very excited to be working on a new book that is in some ways quite different. Uh, it is an ethnography of Airbnb in Greece. Um, so I'm particularly interested in the worlds of the um, owners, investors, hosts, uh, designers, um, lawyers, real estate agents, the kind of behind the scenes uh, elements of Airbnb that have been somewhat less explored while there's been fabulous work done on the fact that it's um, generating uh, really uh, terrifying and uh, powerful forms of gentrification, for example, across uh, the globe and in Greece in particular. Um, on the one hand, and I also think that a certain amount of attention is paid to the guest experience of Airbnb. So I'd like to kind of tell the story of how this, um, how a kind of ecosystem of people and things and forms of property and wealth are um, coming together, is coming together through the proliferation of Airbnb um, in Greece. And the last thing I'll say is that um, because uh, the Greek real estate market uh, value in the in that market values dropped so dramatically during the crisis, um, and Airbnb kind of appeared at the same time to uh, provide a kind of way for generating income out of real estate. Greece has seen a huge uh, influx of 
international investors in in its real estate and also um, people who are investing in real estate in order to put their properties on Airbnb. So I've ended up following some of those investors out to Israel because Israel tends is actually one of the largest um, uh, sources of those investors, along with China, Russia, and Turkey. So I'm excited to see where the research goes, but it's becoming multi-sided, and um, and we'll see kind of how. In fact, I'll I'll draw the boundaries around it. That sounds like a really great project. I'm so excited that someone's working on on that. I always think about that when I'm staying in an Airbnb about what's the economy that makes this possible. Yeah. So thanks again for um, taking the time to talk and for um, for the book. It's a, a really fantastic piece of work. And I just want to say congratulations again. And thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.